The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, I pray right now that you would help us continue to worship you as we proclaim your word and hear your word. I pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to receive it well, that we would worship you and value you by listening attentively, by examining our hearts in light of your word, and by seeking to be transformed by it in the ways that you desire us to be. We know we can't do this apart from your grace, so we pray that you would do this in us right now for your glory and out of your love for us. I pray, Father, that you would give us clarity on this incredible exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, that you would cause us to understand Jesus' call to be born again, why we must be born again. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to know how we can be born again. I pray, Father, that as a result of this passage today, that if there is anybody here in this, in this church who hasn't experienced that second, birth, that, that second birth yet, that today would be the day they do. I pray that your Holy Spirit would blow over them today, that you would give them a new heart, that you would make them a new person, even this morning. Do that for your glory in their life. I pray, Father, that for those who have experienced the second birth, that as we reflect on this second birth this morning, and on our own second birth this morning, that you would cause us to rejoice greatly in this marvelous and mysterious work of grace by your Spirit. Cause us to celebrate, cause us to praise you, cause us to glorify you, and cause us to walk with the new hearts that you've given us. I pray, Father, that you would also cause us to respond to this message by faithfully praying for those in our lives who haven't experienced this, this new birth yet. To pray that your Spirit would blow over them and give them new hearts, even as you've given us new hearts. Do these things in us by your grace. Again, we need your grace, and so we pray. We pray for it right now. We depend on you for it now. It's in your name. Amen. All right. Well, if you're not already in John chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn there now. Unfortunately, Pastor Keith has a stomach bug, and so the study which we've been working through in the book of Revelation is going to be on pause this morning. We're going to turn to a different chapter, still by the same author, uh, same, still by the Apostle John, but this is now his biography about the life of Jesus that we're going to be in today, rather than his account of the visions that God gave him of the end times, which we've been working through in the book of Revelation. Uh, this sermon was uh, prepared with minimal preparation, and by that I mean uh, just a few hours this morning, but I have had a chance to, to, uh, to actually teach this passage in doing uh, Bible study with with uh, unbelievers at, at San Jose State. So it's not that there was, uh, there was no thought prior to this, and one of the reasons why I picked it is because it's a passage that is, uh, is, is more familiar, uh, perhaps to me and, and hopefully to you as well, and so it'll be a little bit easier for us to, uh, to engage with today. Uh, that said, I also think it happens to be a, a better passage for Mother's Day. Uh, so if you're a mother, happy Mother's Day, by the way. And, uh, and what we were going to be in prior to choosing John 3 was a chapter in Revelation that talks about Jesus as God's, divine, uh, as God's divine warrior, him coming back with the armies of heaven on his white horse with his robe dipped in blood, ready to tread the winepress of God's wrath and, uh, and slay his enemies with the sword of his mouth, giving their bodies over to be gorged by the birds of the air. So it's not exactly the kind of passage you would pick if you were going to preach a Mother's Day sermon. Uh, this isn't necessarily the perfect Mother's Day sermon passage either, but it is a little bit better because it actually does use the word mother in the passage. Mothers are talked about in this passage, and there's an even better tie than that. Hold on. There's an even better tie here because, you know, when we, when we think about it, all of us, all of us have mothers, obviously, and whether you've had a good mother or not, 
one thing that you are certainly thankful to them for is for giving birth to you, right? But regardless of whether your mom raised you well or whether you have a good relationship with her or not, if you're thankful for your life, then you are thankful to your mother for bringing you into this world. Now, in the same way that hopefully you have some gratitude in your heart for your mother today, you should have even more gratitude in your heart for the one who has given you second birth. Not the first birth, but your second birth. In fact, your gratitude towards the one who gave you, who, who made you a new person, who brought you as a new person to the world, should be so much greater than your gratitude to your mother today. It should be like a, a drop in, uh, like your, your gratitude for your mom should be like a drop in an ocean of gratitude for God who's given you new birth. If you're thankful for your life in Christ, you'll be even more thankful to God today than you are for your life to your mother today. So, main idea of the sermon is that you do need to be born again. You need to become a new person by believing in Jesus. Hopefully most of you know that already. We'll unpack it more though in two points. First, why you must be born again. And then second, how you can be born again. First, why you must be born again why it's necessary, and second, how you can be born again. Let's look at the first point, point number one, why you must be born again. So we're in the Gospel of John. Gospels are a form of ancient biography. John was a follower of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. So he's an excellent person to tell us about the things that Jesus said and did. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' earthly ministry. His gospel was probably written sometime around 90 AD. And uh, what we have here in John chapter 3 is actually uh, Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry is already underway. He's performed his first miracle at the uh, wedding of Cana and Galilee where he turned water into wine. He's performing signs uh, and at Passover, which immediately precedes this passage today, it says that many people are believing in his name. But given Jesus' response to these people, it seems like some of them have a superficial kind of faith or a light kind of faith. It's not the genuine or authentic saving faith that Jesus is, is looking for. And so we pick up here in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. You can look at verse 1 with me. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Signs in John refers to miracles, talking about the miracles that Jesus was doing. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? That's a word that's common in Scripture. It's actually not a super common phrase in John's Gospel. It's more common in the other Gospel accounts we have. But the kingdom of God refers to God's, as one person put it well, his end-time restorative reign over the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God refers to God's end-time restorative reign over the hearts of his people. It's not so much a domain. Sometimes when we think about a kingdom, we think about an area a, a, a mass of, of land that a particular king has control over. The kingdom of God is not so much a, a, a spatial reality, even though there probably is a spatial dimension to it in the new heavens and new earth. It's more referring to God's kingship, his role as king over our hearts, his ruler, his reign as king, rather, over our hearts as his people. And God's, God's reign, it's a restorative reign. It restores us from sin. It restores us from all of the brokenness of this world. And we see that manifest in some of the miracles of, of Christ. 
this kingdom of God, this end-time reality where God reestablishes his rule over the hearts of his people is something that the Jews were anticipating. They were waiting for it. They were looking for it. It was prophesied to in the Old Testament prophets, and it was a, a, a big uh, subject matter of Jesus' preaching and teaching. In fact, one of the first words that we have of Jesus in, uh, in, in, in the Gospel of Mark is to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying here that if you want to experience God's kingdom, his end time reign, you have to be born again. This could also be translated born from above. It's difficult to tell which exactly Jesus means here. Does he mean that you have to be born again as in born a second time or born, born from above as in born from God, born from the Spirit? Either way, Nicodemus interprets it to mean you have to be born a second time. You can look at verse 4 with me. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a reasonable question, right? It's common in the Gospel of John for Jesus to say something and for people to misunderstand him. Because Jesus usually has a deeper meaning, a more spiritual meaning behind the things that he's saying. But sometimes people take it literally like Nicodemus does here. Nicodemus is saying, if, if you have to be born again, how, how is that supposed to work? Are you supposed to, to go back into your mom's womb somehow and come back a second time? How's that for a Mother's Day conversation? Go up to your mother today and say, Mom, you know, there's, a, there's something we got to do here. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying, obviously. He's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking here with a deeper spiritual meaning. And when you hear this, I know we're used to this language to talk about this talk about being born again. But if you try and, and just put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes for a second and hear these words for the first time, try and hear these, hear these words with fresh ears, it's really a, a pretty radical claim, right? A pretty dramatic thing to call someone to, to say, you have to be born a second time. You have to be born again. Try and let that, let that hit you for a second. That's, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, an absurd thing to say. How could Jesus call us to be born a second time? It's a stunning, a stunning statement. Jesus answers Nicodemus in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Makes it more clear, right? Maybe not. <laughs> clear as mud, perhaps. What does it mean? You have to be born of the water and the Spirit? See, not only do you have to be born again, but this birth has to be of water and the Spirit. Without this birth, you cannot experience the kingdom of God. You can't enter God's end-time restorative reign and rule. Now, some have interpreted this to mean that you have to be baptized in order to be born again. That when Jesus is talking about water here, he's talking about actual water. He's talking about baptism. In fact, Canon 2, this is the interpretation of the Catholic Church, by the way, uh, in the Council of Trent, the seventh session, uh, session of the Council of Trent, in the Canons on Baptism, Canon 2 says this, quote, If anyone says that true and natural water is not necessary for baptism, and thus twists into some metaphor the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, let him be anathema. The Catholic Church says, let anyone be an anathema who says that Jesus does not require physical water in order to be born again. Now, it's interesting because when you look at this passage, physical water, Christian baptism, is almost certainly what Jesus is not referring to. One of the reasons why is because Christian baptism hadn't been invented yet. 
right? Baptism is instituted by the Lord after his death and resurrection. As Paul talks about in Romans 6, one of the things that baptism signifies is our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And it's after his resurrection that we receive the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to go baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is the way that Christian baptism is supposed to be done. And so almost certainly Jesus isn't talking about about Christian baptism here, since Christian baptism wasn't a thing yet. But he expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about. He says in verse 9, actually Nicodemus said to Jesus in verse 9, how can these things be? After Jesus talks more about the work of the Spirit and new birth. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? It'd be a really weird thing to Jesus, uh, for Jesus to say if, uh, if, if he's referring to baptism here. How would Nicodemus understand baptism when Christian baptism hadn't been invented yet? Nicodemus couldn't have known. What is Jesus getting at? He assumes that Nicodemus should understand what he's talking about. Why would he do that? If you look at verse 1, it says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was, one of the, uh, he was one of the religious elite of his day. And it says he was also a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus should have been well-versed in the Jewish scriptures. He should have been well-versed in the Old Testament. And what we have here in John chapter 3 is an allusion to Old Testament prophecies about a new work of God. And what we have here perhaps most likely is, an, uh, or one of the strongest allusions perhaps, is in Ezekiel chapter 36, a prophecy where God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is promising to bring his people back from exile into their land. And he says in verse 25, listen to the words of Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's an amazing prophecy. Just on the face of it, it's amazing what God is promising here. He says that, that he will sprinkle you and cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. So remember, the Jews, they had lots of washings, lots of ceremonial washings, ritual washings that they would engage in to cleanse themselves in a ceremonial way to worship God, to participate in the, in the ritualistic uh, system of, of Old Testament worship. And what God is saying now, using water as a metaphor, he's saying, I'm going to cleanse you from your impurities. I'm going to cleanse you from all your sin, from your idolatry. But not only that, he also says, my spirit is going to come into you. He's going to dwell with you. And he's going to move you to walk in obedience to me. The very thing that the people of God had such a difficult time doing and that got them into exile in the first place. But then he says, along with these things, cleansing, symbolized by the water, the purification, and the spirit coming to move them into obedience. Along with these things, we also have an incredible promise. We have a promise for a new heart. God says, your heart of stone I'm going to remove from you and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats, a heart that has real blood, that has real life. Such a great analogy, isn't it? You have a, a rock, a, a stony, hard heart. It's calcified in sin and rebellion against God. 
resists him. And that heart is it's, it's taken out and a new heart is, is put in its place. A heart that's soft, a heart that's alive, a heart that's beating for God, that has a, a true love for him and that actually wants to obey him. Amazing. It's a spiritual, a spiritual heart surgery. You know, a, a physical heart transplant would be difficult enough to actually take out your heart and put somebody else's heart in, in, in its place. But a spiritual heart transplant, I think, would be even more difficult. It's an even greater, an even greater feat. Because in the Bible, the heart represents the very core of your being. It represents that from which all the rest of your life flows. It represents the center of your desires, the center of your beliefs that determines everything you say and do. Listen to, the, uh, listen to Proverbs uh, 4.23. Kind of captures this, this idea well. The proverb says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life. From your heart flows the springs of life. The NIV puts it like this. It says, above all all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows out of your heart. Who you are on the outside, in in, in other words, is a result of who you are on the inside. What you do and what you say flows forth like a river flowing forth from a fountain. It flows forth from what you believe and what you desire. Everything you do in life flows forth from your heart. Thus Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These things flow forth from a heart, a sinful heart. And so, when God promises to give us new hearts here, to, to receive a new heart is not just to reform your life. It's not just to give up a bunch of, of bad practices, to stop getting drunk, to stop watching movies that have pornographic scenes in them. It's not, it's not a you know, call to just clean up your act, to start going to church more or serve people more or do good deeds. It's a call to become a new person. It's a much, much more dramatic call to actually change who you are on the inside so that the outside changes too. To become a a new person. And that, I think, is, is one of the reasons why being born again is such a good analogy. Because what happens in birth? You have a a new person coming into the world. When a baby is born, you have a new person coming into the world. And so when we talk about being born again, we're talking about a new person you becoming a new person. A new person is entering the world now. Let's go back to Jesus' conversation with the religious Jew, Nicodemus, who should have known these Old Testament prophecies. Verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a requirement in order to experience God's end-time reign. And then verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this new heart, which is accompanied by a cleansing of sin and the work of the Holy Spirit, is required, not nice to have, it's required to enter the kingdom of God. You cannot experience the kingdom of God without being born again. 
So the first point of the sermon is why you must be born again. But I guess there's a sense in which, you know, I suppose you don't have to be born again. You can choose to remain as you are. The downside is that you're not going to experience the kingdom of God. You must be born again if you want to experience the kingdom of God. It's a necessary precondition to experiencing God's restorative reign, his end-time reign or rule over the hearts of his people, to be restored from sin and from all its effects, to flourish as the human that you are made to be, as the image-bearer of God that you are made to be. Don't you want to experience the kingdom of God? Don't you want to see it, to enter it, to enter into a right relationship with him? to have him, to know him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him forever as you are made to, to have eternal life with him, to be restored from all of the effects of the fall, all of the effects of sin, all the brokenness of this world, to be restored out of that, and to be restored under his good and glorious reign again, to experience the resurrection in the end, new bodies, new heaven, new earth. You want that. You want that. Well, if you want to experience it, Jesus says, You must be born again. You must experience the cleansing from sin. You must experience the work of the Spirit in your life. And you must receive a new heart. Now the question I want to ask you before we move on to the next point is why does that have to happen? Why do you have to receive a new heart in order to experience the kingdom of God? How come you can't just receive it as you are now? Well, the implication obviously is that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the way you are now. If Jesus is saying, you need to become a fundamentally new person in order to enter the kingdom of God, that means the person you are now isn't good enough for the kingdom of God. The person you are now can't experience the kingdom of God. Why not? What's wrong with us? You know, again, I just want to point out, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God cannot unless this happens. Absolutely necessary. No chance anyone's experiencing it without being born again first. Do you believe that there's something wrong with you? Do you believe that as you are right now, you can't experience the kingdom of God? That you're fundamentally flawed in the very core of your being? Not just someone who has a few problems on the outside that need to be fixed, who just needs to go to church more or make better decisions, or stop watching filthy things. Right? But do you recognize that who you are as a person, the very core of your being, your heart, the wellspring of your life, is actually a fountain of black water, filthy water. That it's not just the effects that are bad, but it's who you are. It's the wellspring of your life that's bad. It's it's your heart that's a dirty, filthy, black pool of water. That's the problem. Do you have a heart of stone and you need a heart of flesh instead? You can't be under God's reign because you're under your own reign. You can't be under God's rule because you're under your own rule. God's not king of your life. He's not your God. You're king of your life. You're living as your own God. Or at least you think you are. Because the Bible makes it clear that even our self-service, what seems to be self-service, is really not self-service at all. We're really in the service of the God of this world, of the prince of the power of the air. That it's all of our self-service, all of our self-worship is really a form of service to Satan. It's his rule, it's his reign that we're under if we're not under God's. Do you agree with that assessment? 
that apart from being born again, you are living right now as the God of your own life. Even if you're a religious person, you are living as the God of your own life. How do you know you're the God of your own life? Well, one way to know is whether or not you're actually living under God's rule, actually living under his reign. Right? What does God call us to do? He says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, love others as you want to be loved. Love others as you love yourself. Does that characterize your life? Are you living under God's rule and obeying him or living under someone else's rule, probably your own rule instead? God says, don't lie. He says, don't steal. He says, don't lust. He says, don't covet. He says, don't hate. Do you do those things? Do you have any problem with doing those things? If so, maybe you're not under God's rule. Someone under God's rule obeys God. Are you ruled by yourself or by him? That's the question you want to ask. Is he what I worship most? Do I worship my career most? Do I worship my hobbies most? Do I worship my pets most or entertainment most or or relationships most? When you do good things, are you doing them for him? Because you love him, because you desire his glory, or are you doing it for yourself because it makes you feel good? So you can check off a box, feel good about yourself for being religious, or to make other people like you or whatever. Is it for him? Is he really your God? Is he really your king? Don't play games with yourself on this. This is not something that you want to, to take lightly. One way to understand what's involved in becoming a new person is to realize that being born again means you go from being a person who is centered on yourself or on other things to being a person who is centered on God, to being a person who truly has God as God, who truly has God as king over their life. Don't kid yourself. Are you living under his rule or somebody else's? Who's on the throne of your heart? You see, until we recognize that we actually have a problem, it's impossible for us to change. You have to recognize, if you're going to experience the kingdom of God, that glorious end-time rule prophesied in the scriptures, if you're going to experience that, you have to start by recognizing that you are fundamentally self-centered, that you are sinful through and through, that you have a heart of stone, that you're dead spiritually. You have to start there. If you don't recognize that, no progress can be made. Do you believe that you are truly, truly corrupt in the very center of who you are as a person? That's the first step. If you want to enter God's kingdom, you don't just need to fix the outside. You need an entirely new inside. You must be born again. You must become a new person. Because the person you are now can't experience God's reign. So the question you should be asking, of course, is, well, how can I be born again? How can I receive a new heart and replace this filthy black wellspring of my life with a pure and clean wellspring instead? That's the second point. How can you be born again? How you can be born again? We've been talking about the second birth. I think it's helpful for a moment to consider the first birth, especially appropriate perhaps because it's Mother's Day. What did you do to be born the first time? You did nothing, right? 
Just ask your mom. She'll tell you you did nothing. Right? You were, you were powerless to bring yourself into the world. Someone else, your mother, who you're celebrating today, had to do that great work for you. It's very similar with your second birth. You have to recognize you have a problem. You have to recognize that you need a new heart, that you need to become a new person. And you also have to recognize that you can't do it. You're powerless to fix it. You cannot give birth to yourself. Who can give birth to you a second time? Not your mom. She can't do it, even if she's great. Only the Holy Spirit can. Only the third person of the Holy Triune God can fix your heart problem. He's the only one who can take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh instead. Jesus said in verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Human beings, human mothers give birth to other human beings. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is such a great teacher. We get this image, right? When you're standing outside on a windy day and you're seeing the, the leaves of the trees shaking, bustling, you hear the bustling of the sound of the winds, uh, of, the, uh, of the wind blowing through the trees, and you see the leaves kind of dancing in the air, you know that they're not doing that on your own. You know that leaves don't have the power to move. Something's moving them. Something's shaking them. You can't see it. You can't see the wind. It's kind of a mysterious force in that way. You can't tell exactly where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can see what it's doing. You can hear what it's doing. You can hear the sound of the leaves bustling in the trees. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, some people think this analogy is to the person who's been born again, that the person who's been born again is like the wind in this respect. Others think it's, it's, uh, it's an analogy to the, to the Spirit's activity. And if it's the latter, you know, the question is, well, well if, if the Spirit's activity is mysterious in a sense, but we can see its effects, we can see its effects in people's lives, what is the effect of the Spirit's activity? I would say it's less, it's less like the sound of leaves bustling in the wind and more like the sound of a, of a baby coming into the world, of a baby crying for the first time, of hearing a new life, a new person who wasn't here before, but's here now. That's much more what the sound of the, of the Spirit's work is like. The Spirit's effect is giving new birth. It's making new people, causing new people to come into the world. It looks like having new desires, which result in new actions. That's the key. Having new desires that result in new actions. Not just giving up your sins, but giving them up because you don't want them. Not just doing righteous deeds, but doing righteous deeds because you want to. New actions that flow forth from new desires. There's a new wellspring there. It's not a wellspring of filthy black water. It's a wellspring of crystal clear, pure water. You're changed at the source. You're changed at the heart level. And yes, if you've known any Christians or if you're a Christian yourself, you know that you won't be perfect. You will still struggle 
You'll still struggle with, with, with sin. Because the Bible says that that new nature, even though it's there, the old nature is still there as well. But now you're a person with two wellsprings. A person with a, a, a beautiful, clear spring of water and a person with a filthy black spring of water. And that filthy black pool, it's being drained. It's going away. It's no longer the dominating force in your life. And this clear wellspring of water from which flows righteous deeds and righteous words, that spring is welling up. It's growing in size. It's getting bigger and bigger. It's becoming more dominant in your life. You'll still struggle with sin, but that sinful source, that heart of evil desires and evil beliefs is dying away, and it's being replaced with a new heart, with a new wellspring, with righteous desires and righteous beliefs. I remember when that happened to me. I made a profession of faith when I was pretty young. I was baptized here in the church, maybe around 12 or 13. And I may have been genuinely saved at that point, but it wasn't until it was, it was later in life, particularly when I was in college, when for whatever reason I, I started picking up the Word of God and, and reading it more and found myself going from you know, reading a few minutes at a time, maybe five minutes here and there, to not being able to get enough of the Word, to spending sometimes hours a night in the Word. And I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened, but I, I do recall there being a time when I was reflecting on my life and realized that something dramatic had happened to me, that I was actually... I was seeing a different person in myself that wasn't there before. That these, that these sinful things I used to desire, I'm no longer desiring. Those desires are actually starting to go away. But it's not just an empty void. They're being filled with new desires, desires that I never had before. And of course, those new desires, they work itself out in your life in obedience and fruit. I remember similarly this happening with, uh, with my cousin. Many of you know Caden. And, uh, and we knew him, obviously, as, a, as our relative before he came to a saving grace in Christ. And I remember when God entered into his life, when the Holy Spirit did this work in his heart, it was evident, it was obvious that he had changed. He was no longer the old kid, and he was no longer the person he used to be. The way he talked was different. The way he lived was different. He was a different person, a new person. You can tell when somebody's been born again. You can hear the bustling of the leaves. You can see the effect of the Spirit's work in somebody's life. It's evident. It's evident. And even though this may not be the main point of verse 8, where Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, this may not be the main point of the verse. One thing that I, I certainly think is true is that if the Spirit blows in somebody's life, if he's working in somebody's life, you will see it. You'll see its effects. Now, is it possible for someone to think that they've been born again but not be? Very possible, right? It's, it's, it's possible to, to, to claim that you've been born again but bear bad fruit. I mean, that's kind of the most obvious way to know that, that somebody hasn't become a new person. If they're still living in sin, still pursuing sin, if the list that we heard in Galatians 5 from earlier today characterizes their life, that's one way to know that somebody's not born again. But perhaps the greater deception comes from people who look like they're obedient on the outside. But when they, when they do some introspection, when they look into their hearts and they ask themselves, and I would encourage you to ask this, why am I doing these things? Why am I going to church? Why am I reading my Bible? Why am I sharing the gospel with people? Why am I making disciples? Why am I trying to serve others? What's my motivation? If you look into your heart and you ask yourself why you're doing the things you're doing, 
if the answer isn't because I love God and I desire his glory more than anything else, then you should be concerned. If the answer is because it makes me feel good, because other people will like me, because I want to be a religious person, whatever it is, if the answer is anything else other than God, other than it's him, he's my God, he's my king, I love him most, then you should be concerned. Because being born again is an inside-out change. It's not just the external. It's the internal, the right internal for the external. Now only you can look into your heart. I can't do that. Other brothers and sisters can't do that. You're the only one who can look into your heart and truly know why you're doing the things you're doing. Don't fool yourself on this. This is, Jesus says you cannot experience the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Make sure you've been born again. Make sure that your heart is truly a new heart. That you're not just doing good things for the same old reasons that you've done everything else, but that you're truly bearing good fruit because you love God and desire his glory. If you don't see that wellspring anywhere in your life, you can be assured that you're not born again. If you're concerned, you think it might be there, but you're not 100% sure, examine yourself. Be 100% sure. And if not, the good news is that you can be born again today. You can be born again today. You can't make yourself born again any more than you were able to make yourself born the first time, but the Holy Spirit can. He's in the business of doing this radical, supernatural work of turning sinful people into citizens of the kingdom of God. You need the Holy Spirit. You need God to change your heart. After Jesus talks about the necessity of being born of the water and the Spirit, he's alluding to the promise in Ezekiel of a new heart, he talks about the Spirit's work, and he says, uh, after talking about the Spirit's work, he says, uh, we read in verse 9, Nicodemus asks him, he says to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him in verse 10, he said, are you the teacher of Israel? and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And he says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is she just talking about? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, this shouldn't have been unfamiliar to Nicodemus as a Pharisee. The people of Israel, when they were brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery under Pharaoh, and they were traveling in the wilderness, we read in Numbers chapter 21 that from Mount Hor, the people set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent 
and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he will look at the bronze serpent and live. Now go back to Jesus' words in verse 14. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What connection is Jesus making to himself? One source put it well. He said, In both of these events, the event in the wilderness and what Jesus is talking about here, death is viewed as punishment for sin. God provides a solution to the problem. The solution is an object or a person being raised up high for people to see. And the means of healing is believing and looking at that object or that person that's raised up high. Those who look to Jesus, like those who look to the bronze snake in the wilderness, will be rescued. They'll be rescued from sin. They'll be rescued from all of the effects of sin and from the death that is the proper punishment for our sin. With regards to your second birth, we can say that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives birth to you. But he does so through Jesus. He does so by uniting you to Jesus. That's what makes your second birth possible. That's what makes it possible to become a fundamentally new person. Jesus' death on the cross, God becoming a man, Jesus, to die on the cross in your place is how the death penalty that you deserve, the eternal death penalty that you deserve in hell, you can be saved from because someone else offered to take it in your place. He rescues you from the death that you deserve by taking it in your place. But not only that, the Bible says that because we're united with Jesus, his death actually becomes your death. It becomes the death of your stony heart. That on the cross, as Jesus was crucified, that stony heart of yours was smashed into pieces. You died with him on the cross. That old you is gone. That old wellspring, it's drained down. No longer there. And the Bible says that through his resurrection, through him being raised to life again on the third day, you're actually raised to life with him too. You're raised to life with him with a new heart, with a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for God like his does, a heart that obeys God as king, that's centered on God, that's ruled by him and can experience eternal life under his reign rather than eternal death. In other words, all who look to the crucified Son of Man, the one through whom God reigns as king, all who look to that man crucified on the cross, Jesus, all who believe in him, all who trust alone in Jesus to save them, Jesus saves without exception. If you want to experience the second birth, look to Jesus. Trust in him. Call on him to save you. You can't rely on anything else that you do. If you're relying on your baptism, if you're relying on your faithfulness in church, if you're relying on communion or your good works or your religion or your beliefs, all of that will fail you on the last day. None of those things, none of those things can make you the new person that you need to be to experience God's kingdom, to enter his glorious end time reign. What you need is Jesus. And the only way to receive Jesus is by looking to him, by believing on him, by trusting in him and him alone to save you. If you haven't done that, turn from your sin today. Turn away from it today and trust in Jesus to save you. Experience the new birth that the Holy Spirit offers to you freely by his grace through Jesus' death 
and resurrection. What a great cost your second birth came at. Your mother certainly travailed over you. Some of your moms probably labored more than others, suffered more than others to bring you into the world. But no one suffered more to give you life or to give birth to you than Jesus himself. He suffered on the cross physically, and he took the equal of our eternity in hell for us on the cross, being forsaken by God the Father himself. He suffered to bring you into the world. He gave his life to give birth to you by the Spirit so that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, could actually be born again so that you could receive that glorious new heart that was promised in the Old Testament and so that you can experience the kingdom of God. So how can you be born again? The Bible's answer is simple. It says the Holy Spirit makes every single person who believes in Jesus born again through his death in his resurrection. The Holy Spirit makes every single person who trusts in Jesus to save them born again. If that's you, I pray that today you'll celebrate the new life, the new heart that he's given you through Jesus. If you're thankful for your mom who gave you birth, who brought you into this world, be even more thankful to God who's made you born again, who's given you eternal life. You need to become a new person by believing in Jesus. Need to. You must be born again to experience God's kingdom because the person you are on your own cannot experience it. You have a heart of stone set in rebellion against God's rule. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit can make you born again through Jesus. Look to him, believe on him, and be saved. If you look around in your heart, if you examine your heart, and you don't see a new heart there, if you see yourself pursuing sin, if you're not doing things for Jesus, then be changed today. The Spirit stands ready to blow over you, to recreate you as he engaged in the work of creation in the book of Genesis, to recreate you into a new person. Experience that. And for those in your life who have not experienced this new birth, the call to us should be to share Jesus with them and to faithfully, faithfully pray for God to do this work in their hearts. If this truly is a work of God, which it is, there's nothing that we can do to make somebody else born again. You can't be a good enough apologist, you can't be a good enough evangelist to change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to give birth to somebody anew. Only God's Spirit can do that. So faithfully, faithfully pray for those in your life who don't know Christ. Pray that the Spirit would blow over them, would give them new life, would make them new people so that they too can experience the kingdom of God. With that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would do just that, that many people in our, life, in our lives and here in this place in Silicon Valley, you would make born again. We know that we can't change anybody's heart. Only your spirit can. I pray, Father, that you would make us faithful in prayer, that we would be faithful in evangelism. We would share the good news of Jesus, that we would call people to turn from their sin, to trust in you, Jesus, and that we would faithfully pray that we would beg you to make them born again. We want so many people, Father, in our lives to experience the kingdom of God. I pray, Father, that, that you would be faithful to make us uh, fervent and passionate in prayer. I pray, Father, that for those of us who have had the incredible privilege by your grace to experience the second birth, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to rejoice, to celebrate you, to glorify you, to praise you for that great work that you've done in our heart 
by draining that disgusting wellspring of sin and replacing it with a new one. I pray, Father, that we would walk with new lives as the new people that you've made us to be. For your glory and out of your love for us, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.